Hi, welcome to Hashtag History. I'm Rachel. And I'm Leah. And I am not going to waste any time on anything because we have a lot to talk about on this week's episode. So let's go ahead and dive right into it. I just lost my space. (laughs) (laughs) That's not a good sign. (laughs) I just, oh my God. Okay, this is all bad. Okay, here we go. Hi, I'm Rachel. And I'm Leah. And And this is Hashtag History. The podcast for both history nerds and history haters alike. Where we dive into history's greatest stories of controversy, conspiracy, and corruption. Today we are going to be talking about the trial of Sacco and Vansetti. Now, we purposefully scheduled this episode the way that we did because it goes hand in hand with what we were just talking about in last week's episode when we discussed the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. I want you to transport yourself back to last week's episode and remember the tone of the United States in the early 1900s, specifically as it relates to the perception and the misrepresentation of immigrants. Remember last week that we discussed the horrific conditions that immigrants faced in the workplace once arriving in America. Now, this discrimination was not limited to just the workplace. In fact, this discrimination followed immigrants in nearly every aspect of their lives. This discrimination not only meant lower wages, it also meant poor housing, like living in a one-bedroom apartment with a dozen members of your family. It meant dealing with daily racial and religious prejudice for the way you spoke, dressed, and worshipped. And in the worst-case scenario, it even meant being tried and executed for a crime that you did not commit. This is the case of Nicolas Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti. On July 14, 1921, Sacco and Vanzetti, Italian-born Americans, they were convicted of first-degree murder of a guard and paymaster during the April 15, 1920 armed robbery of the Slater Morrill Shoe Company in Braintree, Massachusetts. They were sentenced to death by electric chair at Charlestown State Prison seven years later. And with all of that, Leah, of course, you know exactly what time it is. Go ahead and take it away with this week's cocktail segment. So I have to be honest with you, Rachel. I feel like you're purposefully trying to pick historical events that would be hard to find (laughs) a cocktail to match. (laughs) You have the hard job between the two of us easily. I don't think that's true, but okay. (laughs) So um, regardless, I started diving deep into the Italian cocktail world since the Italian thing was really the only easy connection (laughs) to cocktails I could think of for this episode. Um, And in my search, I kept coming across the Negroni cocktail. I have never heard of this before, but since I know... um, that we have some vermouth from our last episode yes. left over. Yes. Thought it would be an easy one. But now looking at the drink and smelling it, I'm kind of regretful. How about you? 100%. It's the kind um, that could burn your nostril hairs, kind of. Yeah. So <laughs> I think we both made a pact that we might, as long as it's as bad as I'm imagining it is, we might just chug. Yeah. Okay. 
so first let me preface it by saying what is in it <laughs> so so the audience can can <laughs> understand can appreciate understand right yeah. one ounce of gin which we both hate um <laughs> one ounce of campari which is like an italian liqueur that costs a shit ton of money <laughs> so i made rachel buy some for me because because <laughs> i wasn't about to do that and then an ounce of the sweet vermouth that we have left over from last week yes and um my little gin story it's it's brief but basically I went to my old job they paid for us to go to this um me not us me they paid for me to go to this records conference in Newport Beach and I got to bring Alex along with me and it was super fun because it was at a beautiful hotel that had a bar and um like a little cafe area and they had live music and it was really cool. But to literally get a beer of all things at the bar, a beer was like $12. So there was, yeah. So there was a Rite Aid right by the hotel that we were staying at. And so we just filled up like water bottles with booze instead and drink that all weekend. But what we drank was gin the whole weekend. No, yeah. no, 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 no. Out of water mm. bottles. So, I mean, I who hasn't done the water bottle thing? Come on. But gin? Yeah. Not, that was not a good choice no. on your part. No. My, I don't have, like, a specific reason I don't like gin. It's just every time I taste it or try it. Because I'm, I'm always up for trying alcohol. Yes. Always. Um, every time I have a drink with it in it, I feel like vomiting a bit. <laughs> So, I really don't know why I chose this one. It just sounded like a good idea. And because it had the vermouth in it. Right. I was like, easy. Yes. Even, you know, like $40 later after buying the Campari. <laughs> yeah. For you, I can't even claim to, to have spent money on it. Um, so, just a little background on it before we take a sip of it. Um, <laughs> while the drink's origins are unknown, the most widely reported account is that it was first mixed in Florence, Italy in 1919 when Count Cam- Camillo Negroni, I- I'm guessing it's Camillo, but there might be a weird pronunciation of it. Um, Count Camillo Negroni concocted it by asking the bartender to strengthen his favorite cocktail, the Americano, by adding gin rather than the normal soda water. So maybe we should have gone with an Americano. I mean, it was still, I don't know. I still feel it would be gross. Okay. (laughs) So let's just go full on gross instead of just halfway gross. Right. (laughs) So the bartender also added an orange garnish rather than the typical lemon garnish of the Americano to signify that it was different, which who cares? Okay. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So fun fact, one of the earliest reports of the drink actually came from Orson Welles. Oh. Yeah. In 1947, he described a new drink called the Negroni stating, and I quote, the bitters are excellent for your liver. The gin is bad for you. They balance each other out. I love that. Yeah. New motto. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's going to be our motto on our wine trip this weekend, right? Oh, I can't wait. Yes. Wine's good for you. In moderation, as are all things. Oh, okay. Well, Well, anyways, drink up. Let's try it and try not to vomit. Cheers. Oh, I, I just chugged half you, of it. Did you? Okay, yeah. I'm going to chug right now. Hold on. You're going to have to put some, like, Jeopardy music going on right now or something. 
I'm gonna check. Yeah, I usually actually cut. I've noticed, <laughs> and that's so good. Okay, here we go. Okay. Yep. Are you gonna do the whole thing? Yes. Okay, here we go. Oh, maybe it gets better as you go? Ugh. But not great still. Ugh. How much do you hate me? Oh, <clears throat> mostly only because I spent 20 bucks on something disgusting. Okay. <laughs> oh, that was disgusting. I'm sorry. For, for gin lovers, I think they would like it. Really? Yeah. I don't know how anyone could possibly like this cough syrup tasting shit. <laughs> no, I think it... You and I agree. It's gross because of the gin. Yeah. If you like gin, I think you might like it. So then maybe we'd like the Americano instead. Yeah. Oh my but god. But I'm honestly never going to try that again. Never so. in a million years. Yeah. All right. Cool. <laughs> we tried something new. Cheers to that. Cheers to that. Cheers to my stomach now like bubbling. Yeah. Gross. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So going back to Sacco and Panzetti... Um, the only way to really tell this story is to lay some foundation by taking us back to the wave of immigration to the United States in the 1880s through the early 1900s. Throughout America's history, we have experienced waves of immigration, sometimes all-time highs, sometimes all-time lows. Between 1880 and 1920, there was a huge rise in immigration to the United States, particularly from Europe. In fact, more than 20 million people immigrated to the United States during the 40-year period. This was nearly equal to the number of immigrants that had arrived in the previous 40 years combined. In fact, by 1910, three-fourths of the population in New York City were immigrants or first-generation Americans born of immigrants. The height of immigration was in the year 1907, when just that year alone, 1.3 million people immigrated to the United States. <laughs> so many people. <laughs> of those millions of people, approximately 4 million of them were Italians. America had never experienced such a wave of Italians before, and both the newcomers and American natives, they took to it in not such a great manner. Unlike earlier immigrants, this new wave of immigrants, they were from non-English speaking European countries with cultures, customs, and languages that were very different from those of the United States. And much of the United States didn't take well to something new and different. Italian immigrants, desperate for any form of work when they got here, they took the back-breaking, low-paying jobs that white American men refused to take. Especially in the workplace, it was clear that racial hierarchies were created with English-speaking workers in the more skilled supervisory positions and Italians in the laboring positions even if an Italian immigrant was more educated and more skilled than his English-speaking counterparts. It felt like a never-ending system for the immigrants because even when they tried to fight back against the oppression, for example, by attending a union meeting to air their grievances, these meetings were always held strictly in English, intentionally leaving the Italian representation out of it. 
The Sacco and Vanzetti case, it would take place at the height of America's first Red Scare. For any of you who are not familiar, Red Scare is the term for a fear of communism, socialism, or anarchism taking over. This fear was at an all-time high between 1917 and 1920, when many conservative Americans became fearful that recent immigrants in particular were going to attempt their own Bolshevik revolution like what had happened in Russia, and that they would end up changing everything Americans knew about religion, home life, marriage, and so on. Especially with immigrants participating in labor strikes in the early 1900s, they were seen as being radical threats to American society, and many Americans, particularly those in power, they became fearful of them. As a result of this growing fear, lawmakers did what they could to retaliate. Things like free speech limitations were imposed, there were police investigations and subsequent deportations of any person suspected of being communist. It was a really rough time. And that right there is the environment in which the Sacco and Vanzetti case would take place. At around 3 p.m. on April 15, 1920, Alessandro Birodelli, a security guard, and Frederick Parmenter, a paymaster, were taking the payroll of the Slater Morrill Shoe Company factory in a box over to the main factory. This box contained nearly $16,000, which is the equivalent of over $200,000 in today's standards. They're literally, they're walking it from like one location to the other on a sidewalk. That sounds like that's how, um, what is it, like Brink security? What is that like security? You always see them walking with like a, a briefcase yes, chain the huge, to their the, hands. Yes. That's how that You started. see like the big trucks pull up and stuff. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, so these are just two dudes. One is the paymaster and one is his security guard walking today's standard equivalent of $200,000 in a box. In a cardboard box. In a box, yeah. <laughs> okay. So while transporting the money, they were robbed and killed with Birodelli receiving four gunshot wounds and Parmenter receiving two. The men that had stolen the payroll boxes from them shot them and then jumped into a stolen dark blue Buick that already had several other men in it and sped off. The robbers in the car continued to fire out the window at other company workers that were nearby. Two days after the shooting, the Buick was located in an abandoned woods with shotgun shells all around it. Both of the men mentioned were killed in the attack. Now, let's back up about five months before this robbery. On December 24th, 1919, in Bridgewater, Massachusetts, so less than 20 miles from Braintree, Massachusetts, there had been an attempted robbery at another shoe factory. It was known that Italian anarchists had been involved in the Bridgewater robbery, so it was assumed that Italian anarchists were also involved in the Braintree robbery. So... <laughs> Without getting too much into it right now, I think you can already see where this is going that like, okay, we know it was Italian anarchists last time, so let's just assume it was them this time too. Yeah, so let's just blame these dudes, these Italian anarchists. Mm -hmm. Right, right. So that's just kind of already setting like the direction of where this is going. There was an infamous Italian anarchist named Ferruccio Coacci who was very well known to the cops in Massachusetts. He was known for being really radical and for being devoted to anarchist productions and propaganda. 
In fact, he was on a list with the government to be deported. Maybe before I go any further, I should pause just to kind of sum up what Italian anarchy was, just for anyone that doesn't know. Italian anarchy in America, it was a big movement right around this time period that really gained ground in the American labor force that we talked about earlier. It was a trend of violent propaganda and retaliation to campaign for social reform. A man by the name of Luigi Galliani, he was one of the biggest leaders of this movement and was also one of the most violent. And also had the most Italian name I have ever heard of. Galliani. Luigi. <laughs> Galliani. I just like, I even like shook my fingers when I said that. Yeah, you got to. <laughs> Uh, He advocated for revolutionary violence, such as bombings and assassinations, to get the Italian anarchy point across. He even wrote a manual about bomb making that was distributed amongst anarchists throughout America. Those that followed Galliani, they were known as Gallianist. And as you can imagine, this did not sit well with the American government, and it played into that Red Scare that we talked about earlier. Okay, so going back to Coachi, because he was such a big leader in the Italian anarchy movement and was a known Gallianist, it was quickly assumed that he had been involved in each of the recent shoe company robberies. It was also suspicious that, remember just a moment ago I said he was set to be deported from the United States? Oddly enough, he was set to be deported on none other than April 15th, 1920, the very day of the Braintree robbery. He failed to report for deportation that day. The cops ended up tracking him down and they granted him an additional week in the United States, likely so they could continue their investigation into him. But he declined the offer and instead left on his own accord for Italy only a few days later on April 18, 1920. The cops quickly learned that Kawachi had actually worked at both of the shoe factories that were robbed, so they felt fairly convinced that either he or his buddies had been involved. They learned that one of Kawachi's friends, Mario Buda, who was also a known Italian anarchist, he had his car at a nearby repair shop, and they thought it would be a good way to track him down, so they advised the mechanic at that shop to call them immediately if and when someone returned for the car. And indeed, on May 5th, 1920, Buddha, along with three other men, arrived at the garage. The three other men were Ricardo Orchani and, of course, Nicola Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti. Leah, I've uploaded a picture of Sacco and Vanzetti sitting side by side for you to look at and describe for our listeners. Note that when you're looking at the picture, Vanzetti is actually the man on the left and Sacco is the one on the right. Okay, so Vanzetti on the left. That's what Mm -hmm. he said, right? Yeah. Um, He's a significantly older man. Mm -hmm. He's got one of those mustaches that I don't even know how to describe it, but it's a mustache people, okay? Um, And so I would say he's like in his, what, early 40s? Maybe even older? Yeah. You could probably look that up, fact check that. And then then the other guy sitting next to him looks a little younger to me. I would say even as young as like maybe late 20s. Um, and they both look very Italian to me in the best way possible. Yes. Good looking guys. 
Uh, especially the guy on the right. Like, I, he kind of reminds me of Nico a little bit. <laughs> no, he's a really good-looking dude. Mm-hmm. So going back to the garage, the mechanic there did as he was told, and the police were quickly alerted. But before they got there, all of the men escaped. Buddha did a pretty phenomenal job in his escape. He actually didn't resurface again until 1928 in Italy. Orchani was caught and arrested the following day, but he gave the alibi that he had been working on the days of both of the robberies, so he was let go. Sacco and Vanzetti, however, were not so lucky. They were quickly arrested and, at the time, were unable to provide solid alibis. Sacco had been working the day of the Bridgewater robbery, but it was proven that he had April 15th off the day of the Braintree robbery. And Vanzetti, who was self-employed, was unable to produce any kind of alibi for either day. On top of that, Sacco was found with a 32 caliber Colt model 1903 automatic pistol. <gasps> that was a long <laughs> sentence. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and 23 32 caliber automatic cartridges, which were the same as those found at the scene. Vanzetti had on him four 12-gauge shotgun shells and a 32 caliber Harrington and Richardson revolver, which was very similar to the 38 caliber that Birardelli, the guard, that was killed in the Braintree robbery. It's the one that he carried on him that had not been located at the scene. Finally, although both Sacco and Vanzetti denied having any involvement with the Italian anarchy, they were found with anarchist literature and were known amongst Gallianists to be part of the movement. Hmm. Okay, so why are we even talking about the Sacco and Vanzetti case? It sounds pretty cut and dry, right? Wrong. In 1921, and even still today, there has been major controversy about whether Sacco and Vanzetti truly had been involved in the crime at all or if they had simply been targeted because of who and what they were associated with. The trial for the Braintree robbery began in May of 1920, and it lasted for just shy of seven weeks. It didn't end until July 14, 1921. Okay, so before I go any further, I just want to say there's all kinds of confusing information that I'm about to bombard you with. Nearly every piece of evidence or witness testimony that I am going to share with you, it has two sides to it. From one angle, it appears to evidence their innocence, but then from the other angle, it evidences their guilt. So just be prepared for a whole lot of information right now that nearly every single piece contradicts the other. Cool, I'm ready. Okay. So in total, there were 49 witnesses for the prosecution and 99 for the defense. I can't even imagine a trial like that, like sitting on the jury. You're literally there for seven weeks listening to that many people talk. I've never actually had to go in for jury duty. I have and I got myself off. Oh, uh, yeah. Because mm-hmm. that's back when I was working retail and I was going to get paid like 10 bucks a day for jury duty. So I told them I had a hardship. Yeah. Okay, sorry, American government. Sorry about that. Okay. (laughs) So many witnesses testifying on behalf of the prosecution, they were shaky and inconsistent in their accounts. For example, there were a handful of people that testified that they had seen Sacco at the scene of the crime, but many of these accounts actually contradicted each other. 
even this one guy, I, I had to throw him in because I thought this was so crazy. This guy named Louis Pelser, he testified for the prosecution and gave a super detailed description of Sacco, saying he had seen him there, saying, you know, yes, he was involved. I saw him as part of this robbery and murder. But his story got completely ripped apart by two of his co-workers because they stated they had actually witnessed Pelser at the time of the murders as crouching down underneath a bench, completely unable to see anything. Only one person testifying for the defense stated that they witnessed Vanzetti at the scene of the crime as being the getaway driver. So keep in mind, this was an active shooting in a public area. People were running around, ducking behind objects, doing whatever they could to avoid being in the line of fire. So it's hard to believe anybody could make a true and accurate identification in such a situation as that. As for the defense, their primary arguments resided in alibis. Vanzetti, as I mentioned earlier, he was self-employed. He was actually a fish peddler, and he had an alibi that he had been peddling fish at the time of the murders in Plymouth, Massachusetts, and he actually had a customer that bought fish from him that day that corroborated his alibi. As for Sacco, he stated that he had been in Boston that day getting a passport. Although Sacco's defense team was able to get a hold of the clerk at the Italian consulate, who very clearly remembered Sacco at his office that day, this clerk refused to testify. At the time of the trial, he was out of the country, so he instead provided a sworn deposition rather than testifying in person. And Leah, do you, are you familiar with what a deposition is? It's just like a written statement, right? Pretty much. It's Yeah, it's a sworn testimony that's it's recorded and it's transcribed. And then it's often used at trial when cross-examining a witness. Oftentimes, I'm speaking from experience because I've seen it in my jobs, Oftentimes, attorneys like to try to catch witnesses in lies or inconsistencies by saying, hey, here's what you said in your deposition back on such and such date, but now here we are at trial and you're saying something different. That's generally how depositions work, but in a few cases where witnesses are not there to present at the actual trial, their depositions are instead read to the jury. As you can imagine, these never come across the way they're supposed to. An everyday example of this is how something you might say in a text message can be totally misinterpreted from how it would have been said in person. In short, the clerk's statement, it corroborated Sacco's alibi, but it didn't come across well to the jury. There were, however, three other witnesses that also testified that they had had lunch with Sacco in Boston on that very same day. Day. The biggest piece of evidence that connected Sacco and Vanzetti to the crime, it was the guns that were found on them when they were arrested. After doing ballistics testing, the prosecution's forensic gun expert determined that one, one, keep that in mind, one of the four bullets located in Berardelli's body was indeed from Sacco's 32 caliber Colt gun. Something that did not come out until after the trial, however, was an affidavit from that same forensic gun expert who re-examined his findings in the case and later stated he actually could not positively identify Sacco's 32 caliber Colt as being the pistol that had shot Fioridelli. 
In fact, there were 300,000 32 caliber Colt automatic pistols in circulation at the time of the murders. And he said it was very likely that it could have been any one of those 300,000. Witnesses at the scene of the shooting testified that they saw one man shoot Birardelli four times. So how would it even be possible that one of the bullets found in Birardelli could have possibly belonged to Sacco's Colt, but not the other three? But again, this didn't come out at trial. All the jury was told at the time of the original trial was that a singular bullet had definitely come from Sacco's gun. Continuing on the trend of the guns being the biggest piece of evidence that the prosecution used to prove Sacco and Vanzetti's guilt, remember how I had mentioned earlier that the gun that was found on Vanzetti at the time of the arrest, it was the same gun that was missing from Birardelli at the scene of the crime? There was a lot of evidence that Vanzetti had lied about this gun. He told police that it belonged to him and that he carried it solely for self-protection, when the cops questioned him more about the specifics of the gun, he described it completely inaccurately. He claimed that he had bought it from a store that did not even carry that particular gun and that it cost $18 or $19, which was actually three times its actual market value. So for the jury, this didn't look good for Vanzetti because it looked like he was lying about the gun and trying to act as if he hadn't stolen it off of Birardelli. In hindsight, it maybe looks like if he wasn't involved, how would he know any details about the gun and he was just coming up with stuff? So that kind of goes both ways. In the end, it was found that there were more witnesses, both those testifying for the prosecution and those testifying for the defense that were unable to identify either Sacco or Vanzetti at the scene of the crime than those that were able to identify them. Something that really hurt the defense was the decision of the defense attorney, Fred Moore, to call both Sacco and Vanzetti as witnesses, meaning that they would each testify on the stand on their own behalf. He thought this would help their case by allowing both of them the opportunity to explain how difficult it was to be an Italian in America in the early 1900s and why there was a purpose and a need for carrying a gun. Unfortunately for Sacco and Vanzetti, this decision really hurt them. Instead of coming across as sympathetic, both Sacco and Panzetti, they ended up rambling on the stand about radical politics. It also came out during their testimonies that both men had avoided the draft for the First World War by fleeing to Mexico back in 1917. This alone gave the image to the jury that they were not only not patriotic, but that they were obviously a part of the Italian anarchy. On July 21st, 1921, the jury deliberated for approximately three hours before they returned with a guilty verdict for both men. At this time in Massachusetts, a first-degree murder conviction was punishable by death, which meant that Sacco and Vanzetti were both headed for the electric chair unless the defense could find new evidence. This verdict sparked huge outrage in the community. Supporters of Sacco and Vanzetti believed that they had only been convicted because of their anarchist views, even though the jury swore that the radical political views of the defendants were not used to determine their fate. I, I don't know how likely that is. You hear all the time about juries being swayed by their own mm -hmm. prejudice and mm -hmm. by the media. So all of that's kind of going on here and is definitely something to consider. 
But even still, a committee which was known as the Sacco Vanzetti Defense Committee, it was formed on May 9th, 1920 by a group of fellow anarchists to raise money for the defense. Over the next seven years, seven years, while Sacco and Vanzetti were sitting in prison, the committee ended up raising $300,000. This money was used by defense attorney Fred Moore to continue his investigations into the incident. These new investigations led to several motions for a new trial. One of those motions was specific to the firearms. That affidavit that I mentioned earlier, the one that the prosecution's forensic gun expert made, stating that he could not positively identify Sacco's 32 caliber Colt pistol as being the gun involved in the murder, that motion was denied. Then there was another motion that was specific to the foreman that had served on the jury. There were signed affidavits alleging that the foreman had been prejudiced against Sacco and Vanzetti from the very beginning of the trial and that he was going to make sure they were convicted one way or another. Despite this overwhelming new evidence, Judge Webster Thayer, the judge that had served on the original trial, he continued to deny motion after motion. In 1927, the defense chose to appeal Judge Thayer's denial of their motions to the Supreme Judicial Court, which is the highest level of the state's judicial system. After five months, the Supreme Judicial Court returned with a unanimous ruling that upheld Judge Thayer's decisions. It's important to note here, this is crazy to me, but it's important to note that the responsibility of the Supreme Judicial Court, it was not to review the entire case, nor was it to determine if Sacco and Vanzetti had actually received a fair trial. Rather, it was the responsibility of the Supreme Judicial Court simply to determine whether Judge Thayer had abused his discretion in the course of the trial or not. And the Supreme Judicial Court found that he had not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what's even more insane to me is that in November of 1925, a convict by the name of Celestino Medeiros, I have to say it like that, mm-hmm. Celestino, he was <laughs> he was awaiting trial for murder, and he actually confessed to the Braintree crimes. And he even stated that Sacco and Vanzetti had nothing at all to do with them. Obviously, the defense filed another motion for a new trial based on the Medeiros confession. They even supplemented their motion with 64 supporting affidavits. But this motion was also denied by the judge, who argued the credibility of Medeiros and even made a statement in which he said that the defense suffered from, quote, a new type of disease, a belief in the existence of something in which fact and truth has no existence. End quote. That's friggin' pompous. Right. The motion denial, it was quickly appealed to the Supreme Judicial Court, who again denied the appeal, this time on April 5th, 1927. So this is seven years after the Braintree robbery. The Supreme Judicial Court basically stated that the judge had a right to rule the way he did and that, quote, it is not imperative that a new trial be granted even though evidence is newly discovered and, if presented to a jury, would justify a different verdict. Right. I'm going to read that again because this is so ridiculous. It is not imperative that a new trial be granted, even though evidence is newly discovered and, if presented to a jury, would justify a different verdict. 
Isn't that exactly why a new trial should be granted? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because there's new evidence <laughs> and because it could result in a different verdict. Yeah. Uh-huh. What is happening right now? Throughout the United States, anarchists were responding to the multiple motion denials by means of violence. In 1926, there was a bomb set off that was presumed to have been set by anarchists that ended up destroying the home of Samuel Johnson, the brother of the owner of the garage that had called on Sacco and Banzetti that very first day when they were arrested. I thought you were going to say Samuel Jackson. Nope, he's not a part of this story. However, I am sure we will cover an episode on him in the future. The anarchist movement was also involved in the Wall Street bombing, which, speaking of future episodes, I am very confident we will be talking about the Wall Street bombing eventually. It's presumed that this bombing was in retaliation of, amongst other things, the Sacco and Vanzetti case. Speaking of Sacco and Vanzetti, they were not quiet behind bars. They wrote some pretty extreme radical propaganda while locked up, some of which even called for the death of Judge Thayer and revenge against any others who had been involved in their conviction. Remember how I mentioned way back in the beginning of this episode how Galliani had written a bomb-making manual? Well, while behind bars, Sacco and Vanzetti wrote to other anarchists encouraging them to read it and use it as a form of retaliation for what they were going through. Despite all of this, both men had excellent prison records. Wardens and guards in the prison were really impressed by both men's behavior, finding them both to be very well-behaved and intelligent. Some of the guards would later state that they really struggled with believing that either Sacco or Vanzetti had been involved in the Braintree incident. On April 9, 1927, Judge Thayer made his final sentence to Sacco and Vanzetti in which he sentenced them to the electric chair. It was at this sentencing hearing that Vanzetti made a really heartfelt statement, which Leah, I have sent that statement over to you to read. I would not wish to a dog or to a snake to the most low and misfortunate creatures of the earth. I would not wish to any of them what I have had to suffer for things that I am not guilty of. But my conviction is that I have suffered for things that I am guilty of. I am suffering because I am a radical, and indeed I am a radical. I have suffered because I am an Italian, and indeed I am an Italian. If you could execute me two times, and if I could be reborn two other times, I would live again to do what I have already done. Damn. Right. I know, it's it's a really good statement. Yeah. Because this case was so highly controversial, there was an advisory committee created prior to the executions whose purpose was to advise the governor of Massachusetts, Alvin T. Fuller, about if the trial had been fair or not. After two weeks of hearing witnesses and reviewing evidence, it was determined by the committee that the trial had been fair and that a new trial would not be granted. In response to this, a bomb exploded at the home of one of the jurors who had sat on the original trial. Additionally, there were 20,000 protesters that assembled in Boston to denounce the sentencing. Leah, I've uploaded a picture for you to look at showing the protesters. Looks like some strapping young Italian men. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. Holding signs that say something such as... We want justice for Sacco and Vanzetti. Defend, vindicate, liberate Sacco Vanzetti. 
and so on. Yeah. On August 23rd, Sacco and Vanzetti were executed by electric chair. In fact, there were three men that were executed that night. The third man was Celestino Medeiros. Remember, the guy that had actually confessed to the Braintree murders. He had been sentenced to death, but they had been holding off on his execution just in case another trial had been granted to Sacco and Vanzetti that he would need to testify in. When it was determined that Sacco and Vanzetti were going to be executed, Medeiros led the way and was executed first that evening. All three men died that night, with Sacco and Vanzetti giving final statements again about their innocence. Leah, I've uploaded a final picture for you to look at of a Boston newspaper headlining the execution of the three men. Yeah, so it reads, Medeiros, Sacco, Vanzetti died in chair this morning, electrocuted in that order soon after midnight. All reject religious consolation to the last to make statements. Yeah, there were violent demonstrations as a reaction to the executions, including a bombing of the American embassy at Buenos Aires. At a funeral home in Boston, more than 10,000 people arrived to view both Sacco and Vanzetti in their open caskets over the course of two days. On August 28th, a two-hour funeral procession was conducted in which 200,000 marchers came out to watch. If there is to be any good news in all of this, it is this. Significant reform was conducted in the Massachusetts judicial system following this incident. A little too late, but following the executions, the Judicial Council found that the Sacco and Vanzetti case had shown, quote, serious defects in our methods of administering justice. No joke, right? Seriously. Following this case in 1939, new language was adopted by the Supreme Judicial Council that made it so that it was their responsibility to review all death penalty to review all death penalty cases in their entirety and that they were to consider granting a new trial strictly on the basis that justice requires it. Of course, over the course of the years, many people have looked into the Sacco and Benzetti trial and the Braintree robbery and murder case. As time goes on, we have better methods of collecting evidence and determining innocence or guilt. Francis Russell, an author who wrote a book about the case, who has probably looked into this case more than anybody ever has. This is really, really interesting to me. When he first started writing, he was convinced that both Sacco and Vanzetti were innocent. But over time, and after collecting more evidence and locating more witnesses, he actually now believes that only Vanzetti was innocent and Sacco was actually guilty. There was so much that I could not even get into in this episode, or this would have ended up being like eight hours long. (laughs) Eight-parter. Eight-parter. But I really encourage you, our listeners, to do some research on your own. There is evidence that goes both ways to suggest either the innocence or the guilt of Sacco and Vanzetti. But I think regardless of that, we can pretty confidently say that both men were indeed involved in the anarchist movement. But does that make them guilty of murder? That's the big question. Were they guilty by association? Were they not guilty at all? It's up to you to decide. (laughs) 
Thank you so much to all of you for tuning in and listening to this episode. And now get ready and get excited for next week's episode because I am finally taking us out of US history and I am finally taking us away from this gloomy murder stuff. Woo! Here's a little hint. Yeah. (laughs) Here's a little hint. Next week, we will be diving into a fascinating story of an ancient civilization that maybe starts with an E and ends with a Gypt. So excited. (laughs) As always, we have a link to our website in the show notes so you can see all the photos that were mentioned in this episode, and we will also be posting them to Instagram. If you enjoyed the episode, do us a favor and subscribe to hashtag history on whatever podcast platform you prefer, share it with a friend, and give us a rate and review. And be sure, as always, to check us out on Instagram at hashtag history underscore podcast. I was going to say, word of advice to the listeners, don't try out this cocktail. Oh, no, no, no. Absolutely not. Nope. (laughs) Don't do it. And with that, thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye.